Well, thank you, Roger, and good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Josh Lewis. I'm part of the ministry team here. Really good to be with you. Really good to wish you a happy new year. Uh, if you're here at the combined service last week, I wished you a happy new year before it happened, and now a week after. So happy new year. Uh, good to have you. It's good to have the youth with us as well this morning through the holidays. Um, there are some clipboards. I don't know if you've got those there out the back. If you want to grab a clipboard, it's got some sheets to help you listen along uh, this morning. Feel free to nip out and, and grab them uh, now. But uh, as we come to this new year, we've got this uh, series we're looking at, asking for a friend, uh, questions about life and faith that maybe we don't say out loud that often, um, but perhaps wonder to our ourselves and today as we come to this new year the question is what's the point of this year what's the point of anything really you might have asked yourself that perhaps as you sat down to make some resolutions if that's the kind of thing that you do or just reflect on the last year and I think there's a line in the passage that Roger read that really hits the nail on the head for how our society thinks about perhaps making new year's resolutions and planning for the year did you hear at the end, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's not much time, so we may as well make the most of it. Enjoy it as much as we can. The point of this year is enjoyment. Get the best food and the best drink that you can. Go to as many places, see as many things, be with as many people, celebrate, enjoy, do what feels good. Don't hold back on anything. Now we might think, well, that sounds a bit intense for me. That's a little unrestrained. Uh, sounds a little crude perhaps. But I think often uh, a lot of our resolutions and the way we plan for the future, uh, a lot of those are directed towards what we think of really sucking the most out of life that we can in the time that we have. Maybe it's experiences that you're planning for this year, seeing uh, performances or going on holidays to a excellent place or ticking particular activities off a list this is really the impulse behind the idea of a bucket list right a list of things that you you want to do before you die before the tomorrow of that phrase comes is that how you think about life this coming year perhaps we have a more long-term strategy for enjoyment though, uh, but it's really just the same thing. We think tomorrow, that's not gonna come for some time yet. So let's put things in place now so we can enjoy life in the future. This year, I'm gonna invest in my health a little more. I'm gonna invest in my family, in my children, uh, give them the best that, that I can this year. Or I'm gonna invest in my career this year. So one day I'll be able to sit back and relax and enjoy things more. Is this the point of this year to set up for next year? Now, I think as we think about it, we often uh, realize that perhaps that approach is a, a little shallow, even as it does infiltrate our own hearts. I think we get glimpses that those things on their own feel a little empty, that those strategy, strategies for enjoyment haven't worked. So when you think about that a little more, perhaps you get to thinking about the second part of that phrase, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And perhaps as you've reflected on the last year and maybe reflect on this year to come, uh, you, you, you kind of think, well, whether tomorrow is soon or uh, 50 years from now, as, as death approaches, that's a, a dreadful thought. Perhaps this reality has, has felt close to you in this last year. And as you've perhaps planned, everything else has, has seemed a little pointless. 
Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's kind of the tagline for our society. It's one that we can't help uh, but kind of seep into our thinking at least a little bit. Uh, and this passage, there is, there is a lot in this passage that Roger read out for us, but this passage has an answer to this approach to life. This passage tells us something to understand about our world that brings hope and a point to the year. And it's a bit unexpected what this passage says. The counter uh, to this motto from the passage is the bodily resurrection of believers. Right, The bodily resurrection of believers. This passage is about how a firm belief in the bodily resurrection solidifies our hope for life and gives us purpose, gives us a point to this year. Now, you'll probably note I've been deliberately saying bodily resurrection when I talk about life after death. See, I'm talking about those who trust Jesus being made alive again with bodies, never to die again. That's the future that the Bible talks about. Now, it's not some kind of disembodied uh, sort of picture or experience of heaven. I think that's what the Corinthians, who Paul is writing to here, were perhaps thinking. I think that's what we often think. We have sort of a Philadelphia cream cheese picture of heaven. I don't know if you're familiar with that advert. See, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That is good advice if there is nothing after we die. It's good advice. Just make the most of now, right? But it's also pretty good advice if there is only a disembodied existence after we die. Right? That kind of heaven, it's sort of just like a nice add-on to the rest of life when we make it to the end. You think, well, we get the most out of life, and then heaven's like a bonus at the end. We think, oh, well, we're in for the bonus, so it doesn't matter what we do now. The bonus is coming. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we go to heaven. That could be a slogan uh, for today. But there's a point to this year because of the bodily resurrection in the new creation. It means that everything has a point. So that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about this idea of resurrection. Uh, this passage has lots to say about it, and we're going to pick up on a few parts of the passage. But the message of this passage is that bodily resurrection is a non-negotiable, because in the big picture, it has to do with God's reordering of the entire world. So have a look just quickly, run your eyes over those first 11 verses that we had read. We're not going to spend long on these. The point of these 11 verses is that Jesus really rose from the dead, not as a ghost, not as an idea, as a physical human being. And there is, there is excellent historical evidence uh, for this having happened, including what's contained in these verses. Uh, if you're interested in following that up more, there's lots of books you could get or feel free to chat with me after. I've got, I think, a couple of books coming up on the screen for you. Those are just two options um, about the historical evidence for Jesus and the resurrection. But I'm not going to talk about that kind of historical evidence today. I'm going to show, I hope, how Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection fits in God's big plan for the world. And I think if we understand that, then that itself is actually just so beautiful and compelling that it's a good reason to believe in Jesus' resurrection actually happening. So we're going to start with those first 11 verses taken for granted. Jesus raised from the dead. Let's take that as true. The question then is, how does that fit with us? Well, it fits because we are resurrected in the same way. 
Here's the picture it gives us. It says resurrection's like a harvest. Okay? Jesus is described as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits, unsurprisingly, are the first fruit you get at the start of a harvest. And in the Old Testament, the first fruits were uh, offered to God. The point being to give to God first and then trust that more was coming to provide for your needs. So the first fruits, if they pop up, you know that the harvest has started, that the rest is definitely coming. Uh, It's all part of one event. It's like this with Jesus' bodily resurrection. Resurrection has started in one person. It's begun, and because he's been raised, those who believe in him will be raised. Just as a matter of course, it's it's begun. The event has, has started. We're midway through the harvest right now. So this passage says Jesus has been raised, so we will be raised. But what does that matter? So what if we're not raised like Jesus? So what if you believe that there's nothing after we die? Or, or you look forward to our kind of Philadelphia cheese kind of heaven. Uh, you don't look forward to a new creation. Well, I think there are some massive implications. Without the bodily resurrection, we might think we have hope, but our, our hope is baseless. And we have no real purpose. There is no actual point to this year or the next year. So uh, in this uh, second half, we're going to to look about hope and uh, about purpose, what this passage says about those. We're going to look at how resurrection means hope because death is an intruder in our world. We're going to look at how resurrection means hope because God's putting everything in order. We're going to look at how resurrection means purpose because we're part of that reordering right now. So first, let's look at hope uh, and how it means that death is actually an intruder in our world. And there's this song I rarely listen to throughout the year, but I often listen to on New Year's Eve because it mentions New Year's Eve in the lyrics. And it's about, it's it's a song by Ben Folds. It's about a mother who's going into New Year's Eve in a hospital ward with a sick child. And so she's just really broken up about this kind of clash of a little bit of hope of the new year at the same time, a horrible circumstance. So here's some lyrics. It says, At dusk the darkness surrenders to colour as the fireworks streak the sky and their window gives them the prettiest picture. Their useless luck makes her want to cry. Right? She's in this horrible circumstance and she hates that. And, and maybe that's where, where you're at as we come to this new year. And the possibility of a fresh start just doesn't seem that real to you with how things are in life. Or perhaps when you think about putting things in place for the future... You kind of think, well, it's a bit futile uh, because of where it will all end up anyway. But in, in the, this song, uh, the mum is, is she's fighting against this kind of irrepressible hope that sort of rises in her just because of the new year and looking out the window at the beautiful fireworks. Uh, and uh, the lyrics go on. She tries and fails to stop. Spirits rise. Right? She can't help it. She's sort of like looking at the fireworks and just... I, There's something hopeful about this, even though my circumstance is so bad. See, we do feel that sickness is wrong, that death is an injustice, that we should hope. And actually, this passage tells us why. It gives us real, solid, grounded hope, because it shows us that death, as perhaps we we kind of intuit, is actually a temporary visitor to our world. I guess it's a strange way to think about death. It's not the way that most of the world thinks about death. But death was not here at the beginning, and death will not be here 
at the end. In verse 17, it says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins. Hold on, how does Christ coming back to life mean that sin and death is dealt with? This is where the Bible's connection between sin and death is really important, right? Sin leads to death. It makes kind of sense when you think about sin as the act of rejecting the life-bringing God, the source of life. Without sin, there is no death. Sin wasn't always in the world, and neither was death. God made the world good. But when people first sinned, death entered the world. I've got this little graphic for you to hopefully help you understand. Genesis 1 and 2, there's no death in the world because there's no sin. At the point where uh, Adam and Eve sinned, death enters the world as sin does. And so that's where we now live. But this is the wonderful news that Jesus has dealt with sin And if sin has been destroyed, then death is gone. As Paul says later in this chapter, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is is sin. And so if Jesus really dealt with our sin on the cross, then if it's gone, we have to rise from the dead because without sin, there is no death, right? There's life, bodily life. That's what this passage talks about. It says there in verse 26, the final enemy to be destroyed is death. This is why bodily resurrection is so important. This is why an idea about a disembodied kind of heaven is not a Christian idea. A disembodied heaven, that's not the defeat of death. That's a, that's a compromise. That's saying, okay, all right, death You've come into the world, you've, ra- you've ravaged my body, I'm going to die, but no worries, no worries. I'm going I'm to, you, you win this round, I'm going to continue life uh, in some other way over here. No, no, that's not living. That's not life as God created it. This is why Christ rose from the dead. This is why those who are in Christ will rise from the dead. So as we think about, I guess, that second part of that tagline, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Tomorrow we die. That's not true, because the ultimate future is life. As we approach death, whether soon or a lot further down the track, actually death is an intruder into our world, an unwelcome guest. I don't know if you noticed, as Paul talked about death in this passage, he he called it again and again, falling asleep, right? It's just this sort of temporary thing before death is defeated and life reigns. Wake up time is soon. Death is truly awful, but when Jesus deals with our sin, death is truly beaten. Resurrection brings hope because it means that death is merely an intruder. The resurrection also brings hope because God's putting everything in order. And as you think about, I guess, your resolutions for the new year, I think a lot of our resolutions are often about ordering things, making our lives more ordered. Perhaps you go, right, I'm going to have more orderly uh, personal uh, physical exercise routine this year. I'm going to balance my work and my life a little bit better. I'm going to get around to finishing the project that I've had going for quite a while. I'm going to be more committed to my daily quiet time. I don't know which ones of those you've thought, I'm going to order my life a bit better this year. It's actually, it's quite interesting 
being here during the week, we've got this Anglicare bin out here, and I think lots of people think they're going to order their closets at this time of year because it fills up, the man comes and empties it and it fills up again. But we have an urge to be ordered, right? That's not surprising because God is into ordering things. This passage is all about ordering. It's the ordering of the whole universe. It's massive. Have a look at the ordering language just there in verses 23 to 28. I know you can't read this, but hopefully you can see the yellow bits. Uh, Each in turn, put all enemies under, put everything under, put under him, put everything under, made subject to. All this language of ordering, what's being ordered? Well, to see what's, what's happening here, to see why this is so important, we just need to take a quick trip back to how things were originally ordered, how God created, right? This is how God made things originally. He made humankind, Adam and Eve, with a special role. He made them in his image and said to them, you have dominion over the rest of creation. So humans were supposed to look after the world, enjoying it, bringing worship to God and bringing God's good rule to bear on creation. So this is kind of how the order was supposed to work. God, humanity, creation. But of course, this was disrupted when the snake, right, part of the non-human creation told Eve and Adam what to do. And Eve and Adam decided to go against God, the creator. So the order disrupted. In fact, it's totally reversed. And that disorder That's when sin enters the world. And as we just talked about, sin leads to death. Death for all people stemmed from this moment of tragic disordering. And so as we look at our passage in verse 22, talking about the first human, it says, in Adam all die. But then the rest of the sentence, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Right? And if all are made alive... That means uh, death is defeated, sin is no more, and the order is set right. right. So let's see how the order is set right in this passage. Have a look at verses 23 and 24. All will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Right, so this is talking about a time the resurrection has happened, the harvest is complete, death has been destroyed. And not only death, look, Christ is in charge. He's destroyed dominion, authority, power, everything opposed to God. He rules, he's on top. So this is kind of what we got. We got Christ ruling over creation. And then there's this strange part about Christ handing over the kingdom to God. What's going on there? Well, it's bringing back the order, the last thing to happen. He hands over the kingdom to God. And so now our order is God, Christ, creation. But then you think, well, what happened to humanity from our original order? What does, what does it have to do with us? Well, because Jesus is the Christ, right? That is God's chosen king. He is the one who represents God's people. So in this order, he represents us. In that, in that position. But not only that, he is also human, right? The only human who truly lived as humans should live. And that's what the reference to um, Psalm 8 in verse 27 is about, a human being being back uh, where God made us to be. And our resurrection of the dead in Christ completes this big reordering plan, right? Bodily resurrection means that God doesn't go to a plan B, right? There is no plan B. 
Plan B would be if nothing happens after death or, or a disembodied heaven uh, if that was all that, that happened. It'd be like God saying, all right, well, plan A's out the window. The humans spoiled that one completely. They cannot be trusted. This, we're going to retire them. In fact, they can just go off to some blissful sort of like uh, non-bodily existence over there where they can't do any more damage. That's not what happens. God says, we're going with plan A. I'm going to restore things to how they should be. The bodily resurrection is important because it means that humanity again plays the role it was supposed to in God's great order. So, I mean, that brings a lot of hope, doesn't it? That means there's a point beyond this year. We don't have to jam everything into this year with frantic urgency. We don't have to manically tick off our bucket lists. Not only does tomorrow end actually in life, but it's full, exciting life. The future's not, I mean, when you think of sometimes heaven and the future, you might think playing a harp on a cloud, it's going to get boring, right? It's going to be boring like 12 minutes. But that's not what the future is. The future that God has for us is being restored. Things being how they were supposed to. Us ruling under him as his vice kings in creation. See, this idea of everything being ordered right, it helps us with that part of the phrase, tomorrow we die, as we think about that. But it also helps us with the first part of the phrase, let us eat and drink, because it gives us purpose. We can be part of this reordering right now. This year has a point. We can start doing We can continue doing what we are made for. Instead of having nothing better to do than eat and drink to seek our own pleasure, we have purpose in God's order. Purpose in participating in the reordering of everything. I want to think about this just really briefly in two ways. Thinking of reordering things out there as us interacting with the world and also thinking about reordering what's in here, in in ourselves. So thinking about how we might be involved in reordering out there, just, I guess, one example. Just think of how you approach speaking to someone about Jesus. You've got an opportunity to tell someone good news about who Jesus is. Now, in that moment, I don't know how you respond. I'm often feeling terrified, uncomfortable, worried. I'm often thinking I would rather be eating or drinking like I'll have a Big Mac and Coke right now rather than talk to this person. I don't know how you feel in that moment. But the reality is, in that moment, you are part of the biggest reordering project that is happening in the entire world. You're part of something that is bigger than any social movement that could exist in this world. You're part of something that stretches from the beginning of time, but beyond it, to to, to eternity. You're doing something that is hugely significant. When you talk to someone, when you bring, help someone to, to be under Christ, whether that's for the first time or whether that's uh, something that uh, they're, they're doing in their life more and more. We're participating in the ordering out there. But we can also participate in this reordering in here, personally as well. Right near the end of the passage, Paul says what he thinks is the result of all of this, what he thinks the result should be. He says, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. See, understanding the bodily resurrection actually connects with being obedient to Jesus because our bodies will be raised. 
What you do in your body matters because your whole self is made to be ordered under God. And that's actually the point of life right now. You know, there is good in putting healthy habits in place. There is good in working hard at a career or school or uni. There is good in relationships with family and friends. God has given us bodies to do things, to see things, to go places, to run, to dance, to swim, to give hugs, whatever it is. But everything is to be done within the order that we were made for with Jesus as Lord. So as, as we wrap up, this is what we need to remember for this new year. When we think about the point of what we do, that Jesus has really died for sin, that he has really been raised from the dead, and that he's just the beginning of a harvest, a harvest that's already begun. The rest of it, the fruit, us, that part's coming. Those who believe in Jesus will be raised from the dead, never to die again. And getting that affects how we live now with hope and with purpose. That affects how we think about this year. There is a point because there is continuing life after death and because we are part of the reordering even now. So that, that tagline, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I've had a go at reworking it for us. Let us live like we were made to, bringing ourselves and others under Jesus, the Christ, the true human. For tomorrow and every tomorrow after it, we live. Now, admittedly, that's not quite as catchy. It's a bit more dense, but that is true. That's the point of this year and, and every year after. Let's pray. Our Father, um, thank you so much uh, for Jesus and for his defeat of death and sin. Thank you for his resurrection, which guarantees ours in him. Our Father, pray that you'd just please help us this new year to live in light of this wonderful truth, to help it uh, flow through all our decisions and all our plans and all our thinking. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's hard to think of a, a better song to respond with than uh, Living Hope.